welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Thanks so much for coming out. Really appreciate that you come week after week. Um, if you've been coming regularly, you'll know we've made our way through um, John chapters 1, 2, 3, and a portion of 4. And I want to pick up our study tonight at John chapter 4 and verse 46. So if you have your Bibles, you might like to read with me. This is the story of the nobleman's son who was healed. So verse 46 says, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come out of Judea uh, into, into Galilee. So the remainder of chapter four, the first portion of chapter four, of course, was the story of the bad Samaritan. Um, this is the story of the nobleman's son. Jesus arrives in Cana, the place where he had done his first miracle, turning water into wine. And I wonder if there's some kind of linking that he's now come back to Cana, and this is the second sign that Jesus chooses. And there are a series of striking comparisons uh, parallels between the two Cana signs. They are both related to the third day. So in chapter 2 verse 1 it says there was a wedding in Cana on the third day. In chapter 4 verse 43 it states after two days he came to Galilee which made this incident the third day. On both occasions Jesus seems almost hesitant and speaks what seems to be almost a mild rebuke. So in the first miracle, he says to Mary, woman, what has this to do with me? And in chapter four, verse 48, with the nobleman, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. In each case, there's an obedient response from the people involved. In chapter two, verse seven, the servants go off and fill the water pots. Here in chapter four, verse 50, the nobleman goes home as he was commanded. In both, we see Jesus' incredible power released. He doesn't lay hands on either, uh, in either incident. He doesn't pray in either incident. In one, in one case, he simply wills it without saying anything, and the other, he just tells the man to go home. In both stories, the servants play significant roles. In both, they become aware of the supernatural intervention that Jesus brings into the situation. In chapter two, verse nine, it says, the servants knew that the water had been turned into wine. And in chapter four, verse 53, the noble, uh, sorry, the uh, servants are making their way to meet um, the nobleman and tell him that the boy has been healed. Um, 
faith is the outcome in both cases. Chapter two, verse 11, this is the beginning of the signs and the disciples believed on him. And here in chapter four, the nobleman believes and his whole household with him. This is the second sign. So there are some parallels at these, with these two miracles in Cana of Galilee. Now, the nobleman signifies a royal officer, possibly, probably from Herod's court. And scholars debate who this nobleman might be. Some have suggested it might be a man by the name of Chusa, Herod's steward, whose wife, Johanna, uh, Joanna, became one of Jesus' disciples and ministered unto him out of her substance, it says in Luke chapter 8 and verse 3. Others have proposed that the man was Menahem, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. He had been brought up with Herod, and he became one of the prophets and teachers in Antioch. I guess it's supposition, but the man is obviously particularly uh, a wealthy man, a man of rank. Neither rank nor riches protect people from life's ups and downs, and it's been said that silk and satin often cover heavy hearts. And this man had a deeply heavy heart. Money can't purchase happiness and it can't ensure health either. The boy, the man's son was sick. And the Greek has the idea of continually or continuously sick. It indicates a long period of sickness. And I think perhaps there's nothing more devastating to a parent than to have one of their, child, one of their children desperately sick over a long period of time. It brought this man to his knees in desperation. And that desperation drove him to seek out Jesus. He'd heard rumors about the healer and obviously figured that he had nothing to lose. It seemed that there was something about this man's presence, a certain magnetism, New Ages might call it an aura. And the nobleman wondered if he could just get near that aura. Perhaps if I can just get this healer to come and touch my son, something might happen. Now, I might be doing him something of a disservice, but I wonder if the level of faith isn't at this point in time at least a whole lot more than superstition. When he comes to Jesus and says, will you come? Jesus turns and said, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Why is it that you won't believe unless you see? You say, seeing is believing, that's verse 48. You know, it was Thomas much later in the story who says, I won't believe until I see. I won't believe until I can put my hands into the nail prints. Um, for, for so many of us, you know, it's if I can see it, then I can believe it. But oftentimes in the realm of the spirit, the order is reversed. And Jesus is saying, listen, believe me, even if you can't see. Now, the nobleman isn't in any state to appreciate the finer points of faith and, and just almost ignores what Jesus has said. He's desperate, and his desperation makes him very, very focused and says, Sir, please come down before my child dies. Actually, again, an interesting uh, comparison between this nobleman and the centurion of, Roman, of uh, Matthew chapter 8. Both are from Capernaum. Both are men of position and status. Both come on behalf of a sick person in their household. One a servant, in the case of the uh, um, legionnaire, and the other one, obviously, the nobleman whose son is sick. The nobleman requests Christ's presence. You need to come. Please, will you come? Please, will you touch him? The, the centurion 
perceives much more in Jesus than simply some kind of magical holy man whose presence might help. He recognizes and sees spiritual authority and he says, listen, you don't need to come, Jesus, just speak a word. I'm also a man under authority and I, I recognize authority. I have soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes, another come and he comes. Just speak the word. It's no wonder that Jesus commended that man's faith. But Jesus, in this instance, turns to the nobleman and says, go your way, your son lives. And to his credit, he believes and goes. He doesn't have anything more tangible than Jesus' word, but what he will discover is we do too. There's nothing more tangible. There's nothing more substantial than the word he speaks. Heaven and earth can pass away, but the word of the Lord does not pass away. As he's going down, he meets his servants coming up and they compare notes and discover that the boy was healed at the exact moment that Jesus spoke. And so here we see Jesus as master over distance. It was a distance of well over 20 kilometers. In the wine, uh, the water become wine, we see Jesus master over quantity, or, uh, sorry, a quality. Here we see Jesus master over distance. This sign, uh, concluding chapter four, is the end of what Tenney in his breakdown of the gospel calls the period of consideration. And after this period of consideration, when Jesus presents himself for, as it were, the evaluation and consideration of the people, we move now into chapters five through 11. And this is the time of controversy and conflict. And there is a distinct change in the atmosphere. There's a shift from reservation and hesitation to outright and official opposition. And the accusations leveled at Jesus through these chapters five to 11 uh, gain intensity. In chapter seven, verse 41, they call him a Galilean, which is, which is you know, like call him, he's from out the sticks. You know, what would he know? He's from the wop-wops, we might say. A Galilean. In chapter nine, verse 16, they call him a Sabbath breaker. In chapter 10, verse 33, they call him a blasphemer. In chapter 7, verse 12, a deceiver. They call him demon-possessed in chapter 8, verse 48. They question his legitimacy in terms of his birth in chapter 8, verse 48. They call him a sinner in chapter 9, verse 24 and 5. And in chapter 10, verse 20, 20 they call him insane. So there's this developing opposition and name-calling. They've moved to what we call an ad hominem argument. They're not arguing about his teaching now, they're going for his person. At least six times between chapter five and chapter eight, there are references to the fact that they are trying to kill him. In chapter five, verse 18, chapter seven, verse one, and verse 19, and verse 25, and chapter eight, verse 37, and 40. So they have moved from reservation and hesitation to now outright opposition that is bubbling away, reaching boiling point where they want to kill him. In these chapters, Jesus' actions and words put him in a class unlike anybody who has ever lived. No religious leader ever did what he did or said the things that he said about himself. The Jews were totally uh, thrown by the things that he said and one, at one stage they sent a deputation to arrest him but he arrested them with the words that he spoke. They came back empty-handed and they said, where is he? And they said, never has a man spoken as this man speaks. 
Jesus makes in these chapters the most audacious claims about himself, and he makes them in the context of the worship life of first century Judaism. In these chapters, five through 11, Jesus is constantly functioning and speaking in the context of the feasts and the Sabbath. So in chapter five, verse one, it says there was a feast of the Jews. Most probably, scholars think that was Passover, and I'll explain why in a minute. In verse nine of that chapter, and that day was the Sabbath. In chapter six, verse four, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. In chapter seven, verse two, now the feast of tabernacles was at hand. Verse 14 of chapter seven, now in the middle of the feast, Verse 37 of that chapter, on the last great day of the feast, chapter 10, verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication, chapter 11, verse 55, and the Passover of the Jews was near. So these chapters are set in the context of feasts and Sabbaths. That becomes really, really important as we consider some of the things that Jesus does and says. In chapter five, the conflict that develops takes place in Judea, and it is primarily with the religionists as Jesus confronts institutionalism and tradition. In chapter six, the conflict takes place in Galilee and is primarily with the masses, with the crowds, as Jesus confronts their shallowness and their superficiality. And in both cases, he is rejected. Right, let's have a look at chapter five in a little more detail. Chapter five breaks down like this. Verses one through nine is the miracle of the healing of a lame man. From verses 10 through 16, that healing and the exchange regarding it sets up the controversy. Verse 17 is the key verse of the chapter because in that verse, Jesus claims equality with the Father. Verses 18 through 30 is an extended discourse in which Jesus makes outright declarations of his sonship and his authority to violate human tradition in order to reinstate God's original intentions. In chapters 30, uh, verses 31 through 47, Jesus concludes by citing witnesses for his case. So without reading the whole chapter, and I really do hope that as we are going through this, you're reading ahead of me. Just, you know, really helpful if you're familiar with it rather than having to go back and say, oh, I can't remember what, he, you know, what he's talking about. Chapter five commences with Jesus in Jerusalem for a feast. The feast is unnamed, uh, but many scholars, most scholars presume it to be the Passover. In the original language, it has the definite article before it. So it is the feast of the Jews. And there really is only one feast in Israel's calendar that qualifies as the feast, and it is Passover. So at the time of Passover, he is in verse two at the pool of Bethsaida. Now, it's really interesting, but a century or so ago, critics of the Bible used this passage to throw doubt on the integrity of the scriptures, and they claimed that there was no such place, and that these words, Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida, couldn't be supported historically or archaeologically. Just around the turn of the 20th century, archaeologists discovered a very large pool in exactly the place the scriptures said it was. It's about the size of this auditorium and it had porches round about it. There was, an even, there was even a faded um, fresco on the wall which pictured an angel troubling the waters of the pool. And the Bible says that in this place lay a great multitude. 
I, I suspect this site was a bit like modern day Lourdes in France. Lots of sick and needy people gathered in the hope of a miracle. Jesus comes into the place, seeks out one particular man, a man who had been sick for 38 years. That's five years before Jesus was born. Goes to him and says, do you want to be made well? You've probably heard me say this before, but that is not a stupid question. You know, I mean, superficially you might say, for goodness sake, he's been sick for 38 years, why would you ask a stupid question like that? But in actual fact, psychologically, it's a very probing question. Because the reality is, and I don't say this with any, um, not wanting to indict anybody or, or make anybody feel bad, but in the case of long-term sicknesses, sometimes a person's identity becomes enmeshed in their condition. So the phrase, I'm a paralytic, can be more than a description of a physical condition, it can become an identity. And the reality is after watching years and years of pastoral ministry, I realize some people have befriended their infirmity. Uh, however perverted it may seem, sickness can sometimes confer what people see as benefits. Um, money, care, sympathy, a lack of responsibility sometimes. I remember praying for a woman one time and as I started to pray for her, she actually stopped me. She took my hand off her head and she said the most revealing thing. She, she said to me, Don, if I get well, will people still like me? And I thought, wow. You know, sometimes sickness becomes enmeshed in identity. Well, Jesus heals the man, tells him to take up his bed and walk. And of course, in doing so, violates the Sabbath because we are told it was the Sabbath day. I don't think Jesus thought afterwards, oh, forgot about that, forgot what day it was. I was thinking it was a Friday, you know. Um, he, he did it deliberately. Now, as I've said to you a few times over the last couple of weeks, it's easy to beat up on the Pharisees, but I suspect that they were concerned about, you know, Sabbath breaking for reasons other than simply religious fastidiousness. I mean, the Sabbath was the fourth commandment, and the Pharisees saw with good reason Israel's sin and exile resulting from disobedience to among others, this commandment. Keeping the Sabbath was a sign of covenantal faithfulness. It says in Exodus 31, verses 13 and 14, God spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, above all, keep my Sabbath, the sign between me and you, generation after generation, to keep the knowledge alive that I am God who makes you holy. Keep the Sabbath, it's holy to you. Whoever profanes it will most certainly be put to death. Whoever works on it will be excommunicated from the people. Now, the Pharisees guarded this because they wanted the best for Israel. I think the mistake that they made was perhaps to ask the wrong question. I wonder that their question, which completely missed the heart of the concept was, what constitutes work? When actually the key idea of Sabbath centers around the idea of holiness. Not working was a means to an end so that they could focus on being and, and making the day holy. Focusing on work confused the means and the ends. And what the Pharisees did was they saw the law and thought we don't want people to break the law, so they built fences around the law. And the idea was don't, if you don't get over the fence, you won't fall in the hole. So their fence um, 
as they thought about what constitutes work rather than how can we build and develop holiness, they came up with 39 major categories of disallowed work with hundreds of subcategories. There was a list of 1,521 things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath because it could cross the fence into possibly what might be work. And, and uh, if you read them, they're mind-boggling. Rubbing soap to make lather could be conceived as polishing. Brushing dried mud off the clothes or shoes, uh, but like grinding meal. No cutting of the nails because that could be conceived as shearing. And on and on and on it went. And the Pharisees, as I say, saw these regulations as a fence around Torah. Jesus perceived that the violation of the Sabbath was actually, his, his perceived violation of the Sabbath was in actual fact a challenge to their interpretation of what constituted work rather than forget about Sabbath. When Jesus instructed the man to take up his bed and walk, he violated the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees had instituted. And you can see how bent out of shape religious thinking can be in the response of the Pharisees to the miracle. They overlook the remarkable nature of what has just transpired for the sake of theological exactitude. They, they don't ask, who healed you? How, how did he do it? This is incredible. How long have you been sick? 38 years. What did he do? No questions like that. They said, who told you to carry the bed on the Sabbath? <laughs> the healing was nothing. The carrying of a load on the wrong day was everything. And I wonder that this doesn't constitute what Jesus talked about when he said people strain gnats and swallow camels. It's a classic example. Now, Jesus' breaking of the Sabbath rules started a process that ultimately ended up in him being crucified. In verse 16, it says they persecuted him. The idea has uh, the beginning of a legal process being enacted. They began to go after him. Jesus' justification for his actions in verse 17 outrages them beyond measure. This is the key verse. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. And they drew a sharp, deep breath. And the reason they did is he said, not our father is working, but my father is working. That form of speech was never used by Jewish people. It emphasizes a unique relationship equivalent to claiming equality with God. And if you read the passage, that's how they understood it. Since the kind of relationship that I have with my father uh, is, 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 is that we are one, if he works, so can I is effectively what Jesus is saying. And you see in verse 18, they understand the nature of the claim that he is making and their response is to try and kill him for blasphemy. They, they, they get what he is saying, even if it sometimes goes over our heads. You know, liberal scholars or critics of the Jesus story who claim all this divinity stuff was made up by Jesus' disciples years after Jesus had died and it was something that Jesus never claimed for himself and that if he knew that people were worshipping him, he'd be horrified. People like that have simply not read the New Testament and they have definitely not read John's Gospel because John, Jesus makes those claims. 
and Jesus ended up being killed for that claim. He's possibly the only person who was executed for what he, not for what he did, but for what he said, for what he claimed. And he doesn't stop then with the first audacious claim of equality in the discourse that follows. He claims to be equal with God in seven particular areas, and I want to read them for you. This is chapter 5, verse 19. And it starts off, I'm, I'm equal in working, Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. That doesn't imply any limitation when he says I can do nothing of myself. It simply means I don't act independently from him, I am one with him, all that he does, I can do. He's equal in working. In verse 20, he's equal in knowing. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. The Father has no secrets that he withholds from the Son. There's no restraints or constraints between them. Christ has the capacity to comprehend and apprehend all the things that the Father does. He's equal with God for none but God could be the measure of the Father's mind this perfectly. So he's equal in working, he's equal in knowing. In verse 21 and 25, he's equal in, in uh, resurrecting. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And in verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. He's equal in resurrecting. Now the Old Testament writers presuppose that the raising of the dead, and reasonably so, was a prerogative that belonged to God alone. In fact, the rabbis of that time said there were three keys that belonged only to God. The key of rain, the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting that later Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 again to John, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, you said you believe that only God has the keys for resurrection. Well, they are in my hand. I have those. I am equal in resurrecting. In verse 22 and verse 27, he's equal in judging. Verse 22 says, for the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. In verse 27, for, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. So he's equal in working, he's equal in knowing, he's equal in resurrecting, he's equal in judging. In verse 23, he's equal in honor that they should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In verse 24, he's equal in regenerating. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then finally, in verse 26, he's equal in self-existence. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That is a stunning list of claims. Equal in working, equal in knowing, equal in resurrecting, equal in judging, equal in honor, equal in regenerating, equal in self-existence. Having made these incredibly audacious claims to be equal with God, Jesus anticipates the question that's coming. Why should we believe you? If I stand up and say I'm Caesar Augustus, 
You know, you, 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 you can make all the claims you like, but you just can't claim those things without some kind of proof. Where are the witnesses to your claims? Well, Jesus anticipating that question goes straight in to present witnesses for the claims that he has just made. In verse 31, he says, I am my own witness. If I be a witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, that, that's confusing, because in John chapter eight, verse 14, if you go across there, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I be a witness of myself, my witness is true. So he said, oh, what? Well, here he says it's not true, and there he says it's true. What are you talking about? What's, what's John trying to say here? Well, what Jesus is saying is, uh, it sounds a little contradictory, but it's not. What he's saying here is not, I can't be trusted, but rather, if I testify concerning myself, though true, my testimony is inadmissible in a court of law. The margin of my Bible has not, my witness is not true, it's not valid. Right? It's not valid. The, the, the idea is that um, in a court of law, your, your testimony regarding your own claim is not enough to swing the balance of, of decision in your favor. You know, um, I've had people come into my office and make some audacious claims. Uh, I remember one particular day, a gentleman came in and sat down and said to me, uh, he was a stranger and they let, <laughs> he, he got into my office somehow, do you know who I am? I said, no. He said, you should. I said, should I? And I'm immediately thinking, oh dear. And he said, look up out your window. I thought, I'd rather watch you, but what, you know, what's out there? Clouds, yep, okay, there's clouds. Do you know who made them? I said, yes, I do. He said, I did. Okay, and, and so, you know, you can make all kinds of claims with regarding yourself, but you have to have more in a court of law than simply that claim. Jesus knew that in a disputed question, a man's assertion in his own favor, even if true, doesn't carry much weight, or in this case is not regarded as valid. His witness is true, but he concedes that they won't accept it. So in verses 32 through 35, he brings to the table another witness. Let me read, let me read to you, 32 through 35. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You sent to John. Okay, he's now talking about John the Baptist. And he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. So he says, John the Baptist. You know, the, the Bible says right in the beginning, John, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness. So Jesus said, my witness is true. I know you won't see it as valid. I accept that. But there's John the Baptist. He bears witness of me. Then in verse 36, he says, but I have greater witnesses than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He said, there's my witness, there's John's witness. And if you want something even greater than John's witness, look at the works that I do. 
His many miracles were astounding and irrefutable. The, in opposing him, the Pharisees never denied his miracles. They had to resort to debating the source of them. He does this power through Beelzebub. He gets his power from the wrong source. They couldn't say these things are rubbish. He doesn't do them. They aren't happening. They were there before them. And they had to acknowledge that, that truly something supernatural was going on. So as I say, they debated the source of them. Bishop Ryle in his commentary on John mentions four things about Jesus's miracles. He says their number, there were not few but many. Their greatness, they were not little but mighty. Their publicity, they were not done in a corner but before many witnesses. And their character, they were acts of mercy and not merely exhibitions of raw power. Jesus said, look, if you can't accept what I'm saying, at least look at the works. In John chapter 10, verse 25, he says, I've already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is in the miracles that I do in the name of my Father. John 10, 25. In John 14, 11, just believe it that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe it because of the mighty miracles that you've seen me do. You want testimony to the claims that I have just made? I am my own testimony. You won't receive it because you'll say it's not valid and admissible in a court of law. But then there's John's testimony concerning me. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then there are the miracles that I do. They testify concerning me. And then in verse 37, he says, the Father testifies concerning me. The Father himself has, who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but he has testified concerning me. Now, he's referring to a number of occasions, Matthew chapter three, verse 17, at his baptism. The heavens are rent and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son and I am wonderfully pleased with him. Then at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse five, but even as he said it, a bright cloud came over them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son and I'm wonderfully pleased with him, obey him. And then in John chapter 12, a little further on, uh, verses 28 through 30, Father, bring glory and honor to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already done this and I will do it again. When the crowd heard the voice, some of them thought it was thunder while others declared an angel had spoken to him. The Father testified. Jesus' own testimony, John the Baptist, the mighty miracles that he was doing, the Father's testimony. And in verse uh, number five is verse 39 and 46. In verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think they, you have eternal life and it's these that are testifying of me. You want testimony that I am who I say I am? The scriptures. And in verse 46, if you'd believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. The scriptures testify concerning me. Listen, the Pharisees poured over the scriptures diligently, and, in, and, and, and yet they completely missed the point. It's a bit like being in a room with a fantastic view and being absolutely um, captivated by the window frame. The purpose of the window is to frame the beauty beyond. The purpose of the scriptures is to introduce you to a character. The Pharisees poured over the scriptures and completely missed the person. So Jesus presents five witnesses here that really say, I am who I say I am. Later in John, we are introduced to two more. In, in uh, John chapter 15, verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit will testify. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. 
And the seventh is the disciples themselves. In John 15, 27, and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Seven witnesses to go with the seven claims. I am equal to the Father in these seven things and there are seven witnesses who testify that what I am saying is true. Just for a moment, maybe put a parenthesis and let me show you something in the scripture that as I was doing this I saw. The response of this man compared with the man that Jesus heals in a couple of chapters in chapter nine. The, the man who has been lame for 38 years and the man who has been blind from life, or all his life. So for both stories, if you read them, their history is described and we, we know a little bit about their background. Allah, 38 years for life. In both cases, Jesus takes the initiative. Neither of these two men were looking for Jesus, not like the centurion and the nobleman. Jesus sought these two men out. Both stories involve a pool. One is lying at the pool of Bethsaida waiting for the waters to be stirred. The other is told to go to the pool of Siloam and wash the mud and spittle off his eyes. Both were healed on the Sabbath. Both stories involve accusations and questions from the Jewish leaders regarding Jesus breaking the Sabbath. Neither man, when they're questioned, know who has healed them. Jesus makes himself known to both of them and invites belief. The lame man goes and snitches on Jesus. He rushes off to the Pharisees and says, I know who did it, I know who did it. The, the, the blind man believes on Jesus and is excommunicated by the Pharisees. It's worth, it's worth thinking about. In the, in the presence of the miraculous. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, if there was just more miracles, people would believe. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. This man has a miracle worked in his life and he rejects Jesus. I, I've just relatively recently heard of a story of people who have forsaken faith, walked away from Jesus. And I know that they experienced at least two miracles. We were involved and, and watched both these two miracles occur. And here they are now, several years later, deciding they don't believe anymore. And I'm thinking, but, but you saw those miracles. You, you recognized them, you spoke about them. The miraculous doesn't necessarily birth real faith. Remember, during the festivities, it says in the end of John chapter two, many believed on him. They believed on Jesus, but it says Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew the commitment was superficial and shallow. And when the miracles stop, the belief stops. So supernatural is, no, is not necessarily um, faith producing. The lame man goes away and sides with the Pharisees. The blind man comes worshiping Jesus. And again, we see the belief rejection, belief unbelief theme that pervades John. So now we come to chapter six and verse four says, now the Passover, or the feast of the Jews was near. 12 months have passed since his rejection in Jerusalem recorded by the last chapter. And John doesn't talk about that year. He doesn't talk about that intervening period because the synoptics cover it. This is more than likely the third Passover of his public ministry. The first one is in chapter two. The second, although not specifically named, was in the last chapter, and this is now the third. It seems that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem for this Passover. 
probably because the growing opposition and because I suspect of his unwillingness to provoke a response outside that sense of uh, the divine timing. If I go down there, my presence will provoke a response and it could precipitate a crisis before, before it's due. And so Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem at this point. Nonetheless, it is Passover season and its expectations and anticipations influence and, and, and color this whole chapter of chapter six. You know, in, in the Jewish liturgy, they had prescribed readings for each season, much like we do in church at Christmas time. You know, at Christmas time, you can come and forever we read Luke chapter two and, and you know, the story of the shepherds coming and the angels, and we might go back into uh, uh, Isaiah and Micah. We have, we have readings concerning that season, and the Jewish people did too. So obviously at Passover, they would read Exodus chapter 12 with the, uh, with the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt. Chapter 16, they read, the, you know, the Lord provided manna from heaven. Um, and the point of the readings and the point of the feasts was to remember the past and renew their hope that another deliverer after the same order of Moses would come to them in their present or at least in their near future. And so this chapter resounds with echoes of Exodus. There's Moses, there's the manna. They talk about the prophet that Moses had prophesied about. There's flesh to be eaten. Uh, there's the outpouring of blood. Jesus is feeding bread from heaven, walking on the water to deliver his people. All of these have kind of Exodus allusions to them. So chapter six breaks down like this. In verses one through 15, it's the sign. In 16 to 21, it's the storm. In 22 to 59, it's the sermon. And in verses 60 to 71, it's the sifting. So we've got the sign, the storm, the sermon, and the sifting. Let's quickly have a look at the sign. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. John's description of it is interesting because he alone mentions certain disciples by name. In the synoptics, the disciples are spoken about as a group but are not individually isolated or spoken to. In keeping with John's focus on individuals, John mentions at least four. In verses five to seven, there's Philip. Jesus asks Philip, where, where could we get food for a multitude like this? Now, Philip was a native of this particular era, area, so it might have been expected that he would have some knowledge about such things. Philip's response is to calculate how much food would be required to feed such an incredible number of people. And at the end of his calculations, he quite, he's quite sure what can't be done. But he has no vision about what possibly could be done. So we've got Philip, then we've got Andrew, who brings the small portion of food, hoping that something might be done. Toward the end of the chapter, Peter is mentioned. Uh, Peter, who, although confused, makes the great statement of faith, you have the words of eternal life. And then... Judas is mentioned, who being in the midst of all of this splendor can still choose damnation. It, it's, it's a staggering thought. And as I say, being surrounded by miraculous activities doesn't necessarily engender faith. This season was the peak of Jesus' fame and popularity. There's incredible excitement and anticipation and it reaches fever pitch in verse 15. They were about to come and make him king by force. In verse 14, they acknowledged him to be the prophet. 
Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Moses spoke about. And in chapter 15, they want him to be king. And he will fulfill both of those offices. But between them is the office of the priest, the sacrifice. They can't and won't see his priestly office and his sacrifice. That, that will come later. See, anyone can serve up, if anyone can, if you can serve up bread to a large mass of people like that, you can have their allegiance. Remember in Rome, just keep the people busy with bread and circuses. If we can keep them busy, we have their allegiance. Anyone who can serve up bread like that can have the allegiance of the hoi polloi. But Jesus knows, like their response to miracles, that their response to this food is shallow and he refuses to be their bread king, as it were. Their delight then quickly degenerates into disgust. He retreats off into the mountain alone and the disciples get in the boat and head off to Capernaum. Verse 18 and 19, you know the story well. They are in the middle of the lake and a storm arose. You gotta remember, these men are seasoned, fish, seasoned fishermen. They have spent their life on this lake. This was more than a mere squall. They were frightened that they were gonna be drowned and that had to be some storm to scare sailors of this, uh, of this you know, that they'd been sailors for so long. They'd seen storms, but this one was different. If you work out in the details, um, the lake at this point is about 12 kilometers across. And it says in the scripture that they were halfway across. So they are about five kilometers, six kilometers out into the lake. They are halfway across. The storm has hit them. And then suddenly they see Jesus walking on the water. They are terrified, as I think all of us could identify with. Verse 20, Jesus says to them, be not afraid, it is I. That phrase in the Greek is ego emi. Literally, it means I am. Be not afraid, I am. We will come into that, we will, we will see that phrase again and again and again. You know, the, the woman at the well said, I know Messiah is coming, and he said to her, I am. I am he. The he is in italics. Ego emi. It's the literal translation of the Hebrew, ani hanu. And you'll see why that's significant a little later on. Um, he gets into the boat and the scripture says they are immediately at their destination. I don't know whether you thought about that, but they were six miles out, halfway across. Moffat says instantly they were where they were supposed to be going. Uh, that boggles my mind. Within this miracle, there seems to be four distinct subparts. So you've got Jesus walking on the water, then Peter walking on the water, but John doesn't talk about that, the synoptics do. Then the storm instantly stopping when Jesus climbs into the boat, John doesn't talk about that, but the synoptics do. And then the boat is transported immediately six k's to shore. Instantly they are at the shore. The synoptics don't mention that, but John focuses on it. All wrapped up in that one sign. You can see the parallels in Matthew 14 and Mark 6 if you're interested. So they get across, the next day, the crowds find that Jesus is not on the other side where they thought he was, and they go looking for him. They, they knew that he hadn't gone with the disciples the night before, but getting to Capernaum, there he is. And they ask him, how did, how, how did you get here? When did you get here? Jesus doesn't ask the, answer their question, but he tells them why they've come. He said, you've sought me out because you had a really good dinner last night, and now you want breakfast. 
Don't labor for the food and for material things that don't last. I think this is an echo of Isaiah chapter 55, verse two. Why waste your money on that that isn't really food? And why work hard for something that doesn't satisfy? Jesus is exhorting them to put their energies into securing real food, and he says it's the food that the Son of Man can give you. Don't work, it says in verse 27, for food that spoils. Work for the food that gives eternal life. The Son of Man will give you this food because God the Father has given him the right to do so. They respond in verse 28 by saying, well, what exactly does God want us to do? What what work is required for us to please God? And famously, Jesus responds in the next verse, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe, and I'm reading the Amplified, adhere to, trust in, rely on, and have faith in the one whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Now again, this is an audacious claim. Remember I said at the start, in these chapters, Jesus says things that no other religious leader has ever said. Not even close. There's only one work that you can do to please God and you need to believe in me because God has sent me. Their response basically in paraphrased form is if you want us to believe that you're this son of man that has been sent and sealed by God, you'll need to provide a bit more proof than providing bread for us on just one occasion. Moses did more than that. He fed more than 5,000 people and he did it continually for 40 years. What is your sign in the light of that? You'll have to do better than Moses if you want us to believe that one greater than Moses is here. And Jesus boldly takes up the challenge. He says, as wonderful as that miracle was, and by the way, it wasn't Moses that provided it for you, it was my father, it wasn't true bread, it was just a picture. It was just a foreshadowing of the true bread that would come, and I am the true bread. This is the first time in John's gospel that he uses the I am term with a predicate. He used it in the, with the woman at Samaria, I am. You know, you're asking about Messiah, I am. And he used it with the disciples, don't be afraid, I am. But this is the first time he's used it with a predicate, I am the true bread, and he will use that phrase another six times with other predicates. So in chapter eight, he will say, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he'll say, I am the door. In chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, I am the true vine, seven of them. John's very keen on the number seven. Seven, seven claims, seven witnesses, seven predicates. I am, I am the true bread. This, this bread, he says in verse 33, isn't just for a nation, it is for the whole world. And it's not just for 40 years, it's for all eternity, verse 40. They ate manna and died, but if you eat this true bread, you will not die, verse 50. The, 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 again, you know, just, the, these are, this is breathtaking. We read over it and we're so familiar we don't even think about what he is saying. They respond, how can he say that he's the bread of life that just come, has just come down from heaven? We know his father. We know Joseph. We know Mary, they say. Jesus turns up the heat. He never backs off. You think, Jesus, calm down. The disciples must be thinking, Jesus, this is a public relations disaster. Back off. 
He never backs off, he goes after them. But the bread from heaven has come down so that no one who eats of it will ever die. I am that bread from heaven. Everyone who eats it will live forever. My flesh is the life-giving bread that I give to the people of this world. You know, again and again through John's gospel, Jesus refers to things in Israel's story and he lets them know that these were shadows of the real thing that these were pointing to something beyond themselves and he is the fulfillment of those signposts. Again and again, the people didn't understand and would apply his words, as I've said to you before, with a crass literalism that sometimes made them sound stupid. But he said, I'm the Lamb of God. Or John said it of him, he's the Lamb of God. All of the Old Testament lambs, and there were many, from Abraham's lamb to the Passover lamb to the lambs of sacrifice, all of those spoke of me. I am the real temple. You destroyed this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. I am the real thirst quenching water of life. Ma'am, if you come to this well, you'll have to draw again and again and again. If you want real life, it's in me. That's dead water. I will have water that springs up and if you drink from it, you'll you'll have that same thing within you. And here he says, and you know that manna thing? I am the fulfillment of that. I am the true bread. Now you can read that chapter and you'll see the Jews are disgusted at his suggestion that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They, they just, the, the crass literalism, impenetrable at best, blatantly offensive at worst. He's talking cannibalism. Some scholars say that we should read John chapter six um, in a kind of sacramental light, you know, that essentially Jesus is talking about how we should think about the Eucharist, how we should think about communion. You need to eat my bread, my flesh, and drink my blood, the wine. I don't don't find that argument convincing. Uh, Again, I think it falls into too literalistic a kind of a category of thinking. I think the language is richly metaphorical. And we understand uh, and, and are actually quite familiar with that whole idea of the eating metaphor. We, for example, say he devours books. We drink in lectures. We swallow tall stories. We ruminate on ideas. We chew over a matter. We eat our own words. Doting grandparents declare, oh, I could just eat him. You know, you wouldn't go away saying, this is disgusting. We we completely get that. Augustine of Hippo once talking about this says, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. So it's a confusing story, a confusing discourse. It left the Jews stunned and staggered. And in verses 60 through 71, it results in a tremendous sifting of the disciples. There are consequences when you make a discourse like this. And in verse 41, it says, therefore. In verse 52, it says, therefore. And in verse 60, it says, therefore. When Jesus said these things, some things happened. And many of those who had followed him to this point took umbrage at his sermon and decided it was time to go back home. He hadn't fed them as they hoped, and all this talk of being greater than Moses and of being true bread that comes down from heaven and of our need to eat and drink as flesh and blood, that's just too much to take in. We're out of here. And verse 66 says, they abandoned him decisively. Rejected in Judea in chapter five, he is now rejected in Galilee. 
rejected by the religious people, he's now rejected by the masses. And he turns to the disciples in verse 67, and he says, do you wanna go too? Sounds like there wasn't too many people left. Peter, as so often was the case, answered for them. Lord, there is no one else that we can go to. In brackets, I want to say we have thought about it because that was disastrous. Jesus, we were really hoping that you were on a roll and you have just been a public relations nightmare. You talk about Donald Trump and his tweets. This is kindergarten stuff compared with what Jesus, you have just done. Your words give eternal life. We have faith in you. We're sure that you're God's holy one. That's a remarkable way to finish. But I think there's a clear perception regarding the alternatives. You know, they had thought about going, but where were they gonna go to? John, their former master, was dead. The scribes and the Pharisees? No, they'd been Jesus with, with Jesus much too long to consider that as an alternative. And the hypocrisy and the ostentatiousness was far too significant for that to be an option. The Sadducees, well, they were materialists who didn't even believe in the spiritual realm and the disciples had seen so much in the way of miracles and supernatural that there's no way they could side with the Sadducees. The fickle multitude that would relapse into indifference and stupidity and it's almost like John, uh, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, you've got us over a barrel. We've, we've been with you too long now. We can't go anywhere else. We recognize that you have the words of eternal life and for good or ill, we are in. For good or ill, we are in. There have been a couple of times in my ministry where I have voiced this to the Lord. And I've said, Lord, you've got me over a barrel. I, I haven't got anywhere to go. Um, if I had some options, I suspect I would be weighing them up right now. But I don't have any options, and I just want you to know I'm in. Doesn't sound super faith, does it? You know, it doesn't kind of, you know, I'm in because I've got no other options. But sometimes, honestly, sometimes discipleship is a little bit like that. I'm in. I don't have any other options. I've burnt my bridges. So we're now at chapter seven. And from this chapter on, we're in the last six months of Jesus's public ministry. He's been in Galilee and we told the reason why. He didn't go down to Judea because they were trying to kill him. And verse two um, tells us that this next section, okay, so chapter seven, eight, and probably nine as well, are all connected with a feast that the Jews call tabernacles. So we move from Passover in chapter six, the wallpaper, the background wallpaper to these chapters is the Feast of Tabernacles. There are three major feasts which people living within 25 kilometers of Jerusalem were obligated to attend. Uh, Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I said to you before, this cycle of feasts was to kind of recalibrate the thinking of the people to make them firstly more appreciative and thankful for what God had done in their past more aware of what God had promised to do for them in their future, and more alive to what God was doing in their present. So the feasts kind of recalibrated them. In verse three, Jesus' brothers were all going up to the feast. And of course the question arises, oh, brothers, who, who are these? Who are Jesus' brothers? Um, I came from a church tradition that sought to honor Mary by suggesting that she was perpetually a virgin. I was, I was a Roman Catholic. 
and um, we used to talk about the perpetual virginity of, of Mary. Such a doctrine actually has no scriptural basis, and even the Roman Catholic Church doesn't claim a scriptural support for it. The perpetual virginity of Jesus of Mary is a doctrine that actually came from a church convocation and papal bull in, in 1930. The scriptural evidence refutes the idea, okay? I mean, first of all, Jesus is called Mary's firstborn, which for me implies that there were certainly other children that followed. If, if, if Jesus was the only child, they would say the only child, not the firstborn. Matthew chapter one, verse 25 says, she has no sexual union with her husband Joseph until after the birth of Jesus. So much for perpetual virginity. Mark 6, verse three, Matthew 13, verse 55, Jesus' brothers are actually named. James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and the same passages, passage says that there were sisters as well. Two of these siblings are known in scripture outside of these passages. James, who became the leader of the church at Jerusalem and who wrote the book of James that we have in our New Testament, uh, that isn't John's brother, you know, like James and John. That James was executed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. It appears that Jesus appeared to this James, his brother, uh, after the resurrection. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse seven, he appeared to James. Jude also, the book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation, is a brother of Jesus. In that epistle, by the way, he calls himself a brother of, of James, but, but a servant of Jesus Christ. He's not taken the inside track and, and name dropping and saying, well, I happen to be his brother. He says, I'm James's brother, but I'm his, I'm his servant. But he was, in fact, a child of Joseph and Mary. Now, at this point in the story, these brothers are going up to Jerusalem. They are not believers. They may not have been actively hostile, but they were certainly out of sync with his purposes and uh, remained unconvinced by his claims. And they try and provoke Jesus into showing his hands. Come on, if you really are who you claim to be, get up there and get out in the public and show it to us all. Jesus responds with the classic, my time has not yet come. This, this might be your hour, but it is not mine. I will go up shortly, but I will not go up at your behest. As I say, the context of the next two chapters is the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is really important, and if you miss it, the things that Jesus says and does won't have the impact that they will if you know the background of this feast. So in the remaining time, let me just talk to you a little bit about the background to chapters seven, eight, and nine. Now, Tabernacles was the most important of the feasts because generally it was the most joyful. It was an eight-day celebration held after harvest time. So it was kind of the culmination of the year, the harvest had come in and uh, people, it was, it was celebration time. It happened in our mid-October. It was sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering or Harvest. And during those eight days, the worshippers built and lived in little huts, uh, little booths that they called sukkoth. And they would build them on their roofs or out in the streets and they would live in these booths to recall the days that their ancestors lived in tents as they made their way across the Sinai Desert to the Promised Land. And it was also a way of recalling that the living God himself had chosen to live among them in a tent called the Tabernacle. This most popular feast was rich in ritual and symbolism. 
In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, talking about this feast, it says, on the first day, pick the best fruits from the best trees, take the fronds of palm trees and branches of leafy trees and from, will, and from willows by the brook and celebrate in the presence of your God for seven days. So with these branches, the people would create what they came to call a lulav. And a lulav was made up of two willow branches and three myrtle branches tied together with a palm branch in the middle. The symbolism of those particular branches seems to have been lost over the years, but some in the Jewish community believe that they represent the body and the heart of the worshiper who's carrying them. And they would carry the lulav in their right hand while holding a piece of citrus fruit in their left, similar to a lemon called an etrog. And they would carry these items up to the daily sacrifices during the feast. And on the last great day of the feast, when the multitudes arrived at the temple for worship, they were divided into three groups. One group would remain in the temple and attend to the worship and the appointed sacrifices of the day. The second group would go in, to, in procession to a place called Mozar, a place outside of Jerusalem where they cut down more willow branches and brought them back to the temple. And when the priests blew the trumpet, the willow branches were laid down to form a leafy canopy around the altar. The third group followed the priest in a procession, in a procession to the Pool of Siloam, sometimes called the King's Pool because it was built by King Hezekiah. And the priest had a golden pitcher which he filled with water from the pool. And as he drew from the pool, the people sang Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Then they would return to the temple, timing their arrival with the time of the sacrifice. The priests would blow the trumpets to announce their arrival. The priests carrying the water would go in through the water gate, named after the ceremony, go up to the altar with another priest carrying the wine for the drink offering, and the water and the wine were poured out at the base of the altar. And at the conclusion of the pouring out of water and wine, the congregation were led by the priests and would chant antiphily the great halal. The great halal consisted of Psalms 113 through 118. The Levites would sing the first line of each psalm and the people would repeat it. Then the priests would read the psalm. At the end of each line, the people in unison would say, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. When they got to the last psalm of the great halal, Psalm 118, the people not only repeated the first line in union, but also verse 25, Lord save us, grant us success. And in verse 29, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. And as they repeated those verses, they shook the lulavs toward the altar. And that moment was called the great Hosanna. That's what happened in Tabernacles. And, and I'm sure you've already made the connection between that ceremony and an incident in Jesus's ministry. Matthew 21 verses eight through nine. We have the details of what we call the triumphal entry. The time Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people threw down lulavs, the palm branches, on the road before him. And as they did, they cried out the great Hosanna. Save now, Lord. Exactly the words that they were using at Tabernacles. These people are seeing and making a connection, however dimly, however tentatively, between their feast and Jesus' somehow being the fulfillment of what that prophecy, that prophetic feast spoke of. So, 
with all that background, with the incredible celebration and the waving of the palms and the pouring out of the water, John tells us that Jesus goes up to the temple and he teaches in the temple during the first part of the feast and one of the central features of the feast, the water pouring ceremony has just concluded and there is a pause then between that and the evening sacrifice and during that pause, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. Verse 37, 38. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of, the heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This has just been poured out. They have just sung Isaiah chapter 12, verse three, and they've all come together, it's poured. There's a silence and Jesus interrupts. Rather, actually, not interrupts, he interprets. It wasn't an interruption, it was an interpretation. And in effect, he is saying, I am the prophetic fulfillment of all that you have just witnessed. That interruption, as you can imagine, was as shocking to people who were present as could possibly be. Who on earth is this person claiming to be? And he didn't leave them in doubt for very long. It's really interesting that in each of Israel's feasts, they have their own special texts, the liturgy, and this feast, quotes from Isaiah, portions from Isaiah were prominent. Isaiah 41 verse four, I, I am he. Isaiah 43 verse 10, I, I am he. Isaiah 46 verse four, I, I am he. In most of those occasions, if you read them, you'll see in our translations, the am is in, is in italics, which means it's been supplied by the translator. Literally, the Hebrew text reads, I, he. In the Hebrew, anehu. Translated into Greek, ego, himi. On the Sabbath of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Levites stood and sang the so-called Song of Moses, recorded in Deuteronomy 32. And the high point of the song is verse 39. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. The Hebrew literally reads, ani, ani hu. The Greek reads, ego, ego imi. That is the textual background for the feast. Jesus stands up and says, if any man thirsts, you've just seen the water poured out. I'm telling you that if you'll come to me and drink, there'll be living water flowing from you. In chapter eight, the context is the day after the last great day of the feast that we read about in John seven. In chapter eight, verses 12, 16, and 23, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. I am with the Father. I am the one who bears witness of himself. I am from above. And in verse 24, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 28, then you will know that I am. Verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Ego imi, ane hunu. With the background of this feast, Jesus is being very, very deliberate. And they understand it. In verse 59 of chapter eight, they take up stones to stone him because that's what you do to blasphemers. That's what you do to people who've claimed to be, to be God. This is tantamount to saying, I am the fulfillment of all these texts and all these ceremonies. I am Anihanu. You know, the second key feature of the um, tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, there was the water ceremony and then secondly, there was the light ceremony. 
called the illumination of the temple. It took place uh, at the close of the first day of the feast. It was a very auspicious day in the Jewish calendar, the 15th day of the seventh month. According to Jewish tradition, the pillar of, uh, of cloud and fire first appeared to Israel in the wilderness on this day, the 15th day of the seventh month. According to tradition, it was on this day that Moses returned from his time up the mountain with the plans for the tabernacle that would have the glory of God residing on it. It was during this feast that Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of God came down. At the close of the first day, the worshippers would all gather in an area of the temple called the Court of Women. It was called by that name not only because the women were allowed in it, but this was as far as the women were allowed to go into the temple. The inner precincts were the domain of men and priests. Please understand, this is no divine commentary on the value of women. Jesus' death, you'll recall, broke down all the temple divisions. The curtain separating God from man was torn down. There's no longer an exclusive priestly class. We're all now called to be priests before God. Ephesians 2 tells us that the war between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. And Galatians 3.28 tells us that all gender divisions are no longer valid. Okay? But that's where it was, the court of women. The crowd would make their way down into this court. Just as a point of interest, there were 15 steps between the court of Israel down to this court. And some scholars believe that those 15 steps are the reasons that we have a set of 15 psalms called the songs of ascent or the songs of degrees that the priests going up would sing one psalm on each step. Don't know, maybe. In the court of women were four candelabra, one in each corner. They were huge. 26 meters high. Each massive candelabra had four golden bowls on the top, and at the ceremony, four youths of priestly descent would ascend four ladders and fill the bowls with oil. Floating in the bowls were huge wicks that were actually made out of old garments of the priests, and when the sun set and the people joyfully sang, these were lit. According to the Jewish Mishnah, uh, an old collection of Jewish oral laws, the whole of Jerusalem would be aglow with their light. As I mentioned, these ceremonies always had a, a, an aspect of uh, remembrance involved. And the illumination looked back and recalled the gracious guidance that God gave to their ancestors through the wilderness. It recalled the fiery cloud and pillar. Some of the texts that were read at the time reflected this. So they'd read Psalm 78, verse 13 and 14. He divided the sea and led them through. He made water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with the light from the fire all night. Those verses celebrated the past, not just for nostalgia's sake, but that the present might be shaped by it. The next set of texts were, were to call present experiences into, the, into focus, and they read Psalm 43, verse three. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So it had to do with past, it had to do with the present cry for guidance, it had to do with the future. There's prophetic intent. Isaiah 60 verse one, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen on you. So light was sometimes a name that the rabbis even used to describe Messiah. For seven nights, Israel celebrated God as light. On the eighth night, the candelabra were extinguished until the next year. In John chapter eight, we see Jesus on the eighth night, the time of the extinguishing of the candelabra, and he's in the court of woman where the ceremony was enacted. 
You say, Don, how do you know that? Well, verse 20 says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. That's the court of woman. Okay, the treasury was in the place where the woman gathered. And it's here that Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have to hear that phrase in the context of that ceremony. In the same way that you have to hear his words, if any man comes to me and drink, in the context of the water ceremony. Tabernacles is the background wallpaper for chapters seven, eight, and nine. And the things that Jesus says has, have to do with this, with this feast. In essence, he's saying, listen, you have witnessed and rejoiced in the, uh, and rejoiced in the light of the great candelabra, but now it's been extinguished. I am the light of the world that pierces the darkness, not just for a limited season of seven nights, but for every night, and it is a light that will never be extinguished. Again, it's one of the great motifs of John, light versus darkness. Remember, in him is life, and the life is the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Right in the prologue. In John's writings, gospel and epistles, we are told, he tells us three things about God. Not three things that God does, but three things about God's nature, who he is. In John 4, 24, he tells us God is spirit. In 1 John 4, 8, he tells us God is love. And in 1 John 1, 5, he tells us God is light. And here in the gospel, he's called the true light. It's interesting, but in John chapter 15, he's called the true vine. And you've got to think, well, you know, if there's something true, there must be something that's not right. Jesus, in Jesus, we see God's true Israelite. He, he wanted a nation that would rightly represent him, that, that he could bless and that would be a blessing to the nations. The people of Israel failed miserably in, in who they were supposed to be and in the mission that God had given them to, to fulfill. But Jesus comes as the true vine. You have to read that in the light of Isaiah 5 where it says God had a vineyard and he planted it in in an anointed place and he did everything he could to get good grapes out of it and what he got out of it was stink grapes, it says in the Hebrew. What more could God have done? Here is the true vine that brings forth the fruit that God wanted. He's the true light. So when we say Jesus is the true light, he, he takes on Israel's identity. That's who they were supposed to be, light to the nations. And in the true vine, he takes on Israel's mission. Sorry, other way around. He takes on Israel's identity as the true vine. He takes on Israel's mission as the true light. And he goes on to say, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Literally in the Greek, that means he who keeps following me. All right? Following is a process. In evangelical circles, we've made it a prayer. Oh, you, have, you, have you said the sinner's prayer? If you've said the sinner's prayer, you've crossed the line. Ticket to heaven, clicked. I think it misses the point completely. Jesus talked about a, 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 a narrow gate and a straight way. You go through the gate so that you can walk on the way. If you don't go through the, the, the gate, it's really hard to walk on the way. But if you go through the gate and don't walk the way, you've missed the point. Jesus talked about a continual follower. These things I've told you, John said, that you might go on believing, and going on believing, you might go on having life. There's process here. 
Following Jesus is process and event. It's not one or the other. In evangelical circles, the event, the prayer is all that's required. But the event is designed to open up the process. We need both, okay? What I'd love you to do is to go back uh, when you get home or maybe over the next couple of days and read chapters seven, eight, and nine as a, as a group, three chapters, with the thought that this is Tabernacles. This is the background wallpaper to all that he says through these chapters. And I wonder that you'll see things that, oh, I'd never seen it in that light. You know, when he said, I am the light of the world, I just, oh, you know. I, I never saw the connection between the great candelabra and when he stands up and says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. All of the stuff you've done, prophetic symbolism pointing to me, and I stand in the middle of you as the fulfillment of that. You've been singing about I am, the great I am. I tell you, ego, ego, me, I am, he, anihu, all that stuff, it's me. Can you see why the Jews got so upset? This is, this is nobody has ever said the things that Jesus has said. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Buddha didn't. No religious leader has ever made the kinds of claims that Jesus made. And you can understand when he's making those claims that they say, come on, proof. He says, you want proof? I'll give you proof. I tell the truth. Even though you don't see me as valid, I am telling you the truth. Then you, you, went, you went out and rejoiced in John's teaching. He was sent to testify of me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to be a witness of the true light that was coming. What about the works that I do? Can't you see that in the miraculous flow of works that I do, I'm expressing and exegeting my Father's heart? And then my Father has spoken. And some of you have heard the voice, though you didn't discern it well. You thought it thundered. But he has spoken. He spoke at my baptism. He spoke at the transfiguration. Then there are the scriptures, and you pour over them. Can't you understand that all that Moses wrote of, he wrote of me? You know that passage in Luke chapter 24 where he has the uh, walk to Emmaus with the disciples, and it says he goes through the writings of Moses and the prophets, and he, and he, and he showed them how, how they spoke of him. Man, that's a Bible study I would have liked to have been part of. And they said their hearts burned within them because the scriptures speak of him. The Holy Spirit bears witness of him and ultimately you and I bear witness of his claims because he's arrested us in the same way that he arrested the disciples. You cannot read these words and be, and be, and be found neutral. If you can read these words and go, oh, ho-hum, then you haven't understood them. These words are like a sword that cut through humanity and you're on one side or the other. You either say, I'm in, like the disciples. Well, this is outrageous. This is, we should pick up stones and get rid of him. You cannot read John's gospel and be left neutral. You must go one way or the other. John says, that was my purpose in writing. I've written selectively these signs that you might believe, and in going on believing, you go on having life. I, I don't know that there's any more profound book in, in human literature, and even in the Bible itself, than this gospel. As the Aussies would say, it's a perla. 
So go back and reread. Reread eight, seven, eight, and nine with that background wallpaper and see if it doesn't mean something different to you. Okay? Father, we thank you for the chance to be together. We thank you for the incredible power of your word. And we ask that as we read and reread John's gospel, you would speak to it, speak to us, Lord. You would shape us, you would make us disciples who go on believing. And because we go on believing in your son, we go on experiencing your life by the power of the Holy Spirit that is living waters within us. Make it real to us, blessed Holy Spirit, we pray. Because we ask it in Jesus' name that we might be a testimony to his name and to his fame. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.